the English reformer by the name of Hugh Latimer often preached before King Henry VIII. And on one occasion, he was preaching and he offended the king with his incredible boldness and his incredible conviction with the word. And so he was commanded by the king to preach the following weekend and make an apology. On that next Sunday, after reading the text, he addressed himself as he began to preach. So just imagine the scene as he stands before the king. He begins his sermon after he reads the text by simply speaking out loud to himself. And here's what he says. I've, I've put this, I've kind of paraphrased, not paraphrased, I've modernized this because the language had a lot of thou's and these and thy's that I think would maybe bog us down a little bit. So follow along with me. This is what he says to himself. He says, Hugh Latimer, Do you know before whom you are to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease, but then consider well, Hugh, do you not know from where you come, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God? who is all present and who knows all your ways and is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. He then gave Henry the exact same sermon he had preached the week before with even more energy and zeal. That, my friends, is what it means to take a stand for Jesus. And I think that that is a powerful example of what it means to take a stand for Jesus with unwavering confidence in your convictions. This is a picture of what it looks like to have unwavering convictions, to know that what you believe is right and true, to know that what you have to say is the hope for the world, to know that regardless of the audience, regardless of the context, you are called to stand before God himself and to declare with great conviction the truth that you hold dear, the very truth that has saved your own soul. That's what I love when you look at the Apostle Paul. You see in him so much that is to be admired and so much that is to be exemplified and emulated as we look at his life. I love that they keep trying to shut Paul up. They keep trying to shut him down. This is a repeated theme in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet he continues to take a stand for Jesus Christ with unwavering conviction. He truly believes in what he preaches. And friends, this morning, I think we need to take that example and we need to embody it and we need to understand that God has called us to the same kind of unwavering convictions. Listen, what we believe is true. What we preach and what we proclaim to the world is true. And so it's imperative that we model this kind of unwavering conviction. And I want to do that this morning in three different ways. I want to show you what this looks like in the life of the Apostle Paul Let's begin by reading at verse 24. Let's read the first nine verses together. It says this, beginning in verse 1, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation... In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. 
But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming with all these thing, that all these things were so. As we think about what it means to stand for Jesus with unwavering conviction, notice this. Here's the call for unwavering conviction. Don't be fearful, be faithful. Don't be fearful, be faithful. Here we see the, the literally, quite literally, the case being made against Paul. He stands before his accusers, and here's the prosecution. We know that the high priest Ananias has come down. He's made the 65-mile trip all the way down in five days, which means this, that it's incredibly urgent on their part. It's incredibly serious that he would come in the first place. They've hired a spokesman. In other words, they've hired some bigwig lawyer to come and argue their defense. This wasn't uncommon for the Jews to do, hire somebody who is familiar with Roman law, and so that's exactly what they did. They bring in Tertullus, this bigwig, big-shot lawyer, and uh, he's very gifted in oratory, very skilled rhetoric, rhetorician, excuse me, and, and so he presents this case against Paul. That's what we see unfolding in these first nine verses. Now the case is being presented, remember, it's being pushed through the legal system, and right now, Paul is on, on the stand for Jesus Christ, and he's standing before the provincial governor, Antonio Felix. Now as this begins to unfold, you'll notice that there are, in, the, in verses uh, two and three in particular, a little bit into four, what you see is what would have been a common practice in the court system. There would have been an honoring of the official to whom they are presenting the case, typical flattery, and you'll notice that that's exactly what they do. They praise Felix, most excellent Felix, for the reforms that he's made for the nation and every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. You know, they're buttering, and up, buttering him up as best as they can. Felix, you're the best. You've done such awesome things. We love you. It's interesting here, though. You need to know that this is a, a form of false flattery. He expresses gratitude, the gratitude on behalf of the Jews for the peace, he says, that they have enjoyed under Felix. And this is so far from the truth, it's actually comical to, uh, to read this if you know the history. You see, during Felix's governorship, insurrections and anarchy dramatically increased all throughout Palestine. He, he was known, listen, part of the, the reason they increased was because of the kind of brutality he ruled with. He ruled with an iron fist, and he was particularly vicious. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings. We know that Felix himself is a former slave, and he owed his position to the influence of his brother Pallas, who was a favorite of Emperor Claudius. Pallas and Claudius became good friends when they were young, and so uh, his, his, you know, Claudius used his, his leverage to get Felix this position. He didn't earn it, he doesn't deserve to be there, and he's proved himself to be a terrible, terrible ruler. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus describes Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king, but with the spirit of a slave. Antonius Felix, just to kind of give you a bit of a backdrop as who Paul is making his defense before, 
was an immoral, greedy, brutal, cunning politician. He, in other words, he's just not a good guy. He's a horrible person. That's, that's kind of the bottom line. At any rate, they lay these charges out against the Apostle Paul, and if you've been following with us through the book of Acts and in more recent chapters, you know that everything they lay out here is absolutely, patently false. There's, there's not even barely a hint of truth. They, they kind of really grab a hold of some events, and they import their own kind of interpretation of what's been happening. In verse five it says, for we have found this man, and here's really the real issue, right? When they don't have much to hold against you, they just attack you and they slander you. This man is a plague. He's someone who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, don't you think? Like throughout all the world he's stirring up riots. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's a term of derision, by the way. And nobody thought anything good ever came out of Nazareth. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. They give themselves a little pat on the back. And then, kind of to, you know, as he's making his opening arguments, verse 8, I love that he tacks this on here. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. In other words, if you're a smart guy and you're not an idiot, then what you realize is that we're right and he's wrong. It's a great way to set up your argument. Now, you just need to know this, just really simply, this point's going to go by quickly. This here is strategic intimidation on the part of the Jews. It's strategic in the sense that it's intended to strike fear, first and foremost, in the heart of the Apostle Paul, right? They're wanting to quiet him down, to shut him up. They're wanting to put the fear into him to make him be quiet. Now, there's also a sense in which they're trying to actually intimidate Felix as well, right? That's why they put in the threats of this guy's a plague. He's bad for society, and you're ruling this place, so you just need to know that he's bad for you too. In fact, he's a guy who stirs up riots all over the world. The last thing any politician wanted in the Roman Empire, especially someone who was ruling on behalf of another, was to have riots and insurrection taking place while they were trying to keep peace in order. In fact, oftentimes, if there was too many riots, too many insurrections underneath your rulership, that meant that you would be ousted, and sometimes you would pay a heavy price, sometimes even with your own life. You see, so he's trying to put pressure on him, to, to put the fear into him, to make a decision in their favor to get rid of the Apostle Paul. And I just want, I think here's really the point that I want to drive out of this. Like the only reason that you're making these kind of false allegations and accusations against the Apostle Paul is because he is simply living a faithful Christian life. That's it. He's simply living a faithful Christian life. You know, one of the, the pillars of our church, right over here, you see this last one, pillar number four, right at the very top, look at that. We are called to be an unafraid witness for Jesus Christ. We're not called to be those who are filled with fear and when we take the stand for Jesus Christ. We're called to be those who stand with conviction and that conviction flows often through courage. But anytime somebody is an unafraid witness, anytime someone says, I will not fear what you will do to me or what you can do to me, I will not be intimidated, instantly, here's what happens, they become a massive threat. And the reality is true in your life and mine as well. Listen, the more faithful you are in following Jesus Christ, the bigger threat you will be to those around you who hate what you stand for and ultimately who hate Jesus Christ. 
And the larger the threat you are, because of the more faithful you are, here's what you need to understand as well. We see this happening with Paul. The more likely you are to be attacked, and the more likely you are to be attacked falsely. If they can't find anything legitimate against you, they'll begin to make things up. They'll begin to slander your character. They'll begin to raise up false witnesses, just like they did with Jesus Christ, right? They can't find anything wrong with what you're actually doing, and so they have to make stuff up. I, I really enjoy sports, in particular hockey. And one of the things you notice when you play sports and when you watch sports, and you hear this all the time in, in interviews, when it comes to the best players, the best player in any sport is the one who's attacked most often. Do you know that? And by the way, he's the one who's attacked most unfairly. He takes the most cheap shots out of anybody you know, in, in the, on the team, in the league. The best player, why? They can't do anything to contain him the right way, and so they'll go out of their way to give cheap shots, to kind of bend or break the rules. Why? Because night after night, game after game, that individual is the greatest threat. They're the one, and the language is amazing. When, when you watch the interviews, you know, pre-game interviews, they're talking to the players and the coaches, and they say, what are you going to do when you, when you play against Sidney Crosby? Well, you know, we're going to have to contain him. We need to shut him down. It's fascinating when you think of the, uh, the sports. I want to use this as an analogy for the Christian life, but they say that the best players, and I think this kind of crosses the board in, in most sports, listen, the best pr- players, you need to contain them and shut them down because they make the best use of their time and space. So, so that's always the talk. We've we got to limit their time and their space. You take that away, right, why? Because the best players know what to do. You give them enough time, you give them enough space, and they become incredibly dangerous. So you've got to get on them quickly, you've got to shut down their time, you've got to shut down their space, and you've got to limit the damage they're able to do. And I think that's so often, so often what the world, what Satan wants to do to Christians who are simply trying to be faithful in living the Christian life. Take away their time, take away their space, and what you can do is you can render them virtually ineffective and useless. You can limit the threat. And I do believe that's kind of a good analogy for the Christian life. And I think we see here what really they're upset about is Paul has made the best use of the time he's been given and the space that God has placed him. He's maximized those things everywhere he went. I mean, there's a kernel of truth to what they're saying here. Paul has been found, listen, everywhere he goes around the world, he riles people up. Listen, the Jews hate him everywhere he goes. It's not because he's an insurrectionist. It's because he's faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere he goes, Paul is rallying people to embrace Jesus Christ. He's teaching, he's encouraging, he's walking people along the road of faith. It doesn't matter where he is, it doesn't matter who he's talking to, he, wa- he maximizes every moment of his life. I just think it's a good kind of check every once in a while to ask ourselves that question, how are we maximizing our time? What are we doing in the space that God has given us? Are you using your time well for Jesus Christ? Are you living for Jesus Christ? Are you speaking of Jesus Christ? Are you learning more about Jesus Christ? Are you growing in your love for Jesus Christ? Are you using your time well or are you using it poorly? And really that's the difference between a faithful Christian in one sense and an unfaithful Christian. A faithful follower of Christ puts Christ first in everything in their life. Where is it that God has called you to make the most impact in your life? Is it your home? Is it your workplace? Is it your neighborhood? Is it with a specific individual that God's put in your life? 
my, my concern and my heart for, for myself, for the church, if I could, if I could exhort you as we look at, at what, got, what has gotten Paul here in the first place, I, I would ask all of you simply to live a faithful Christian life so that you can be a maximum threat. Don't be fearful, be faithful. Stand with conviction. That is what got Paul here in the first place. And as I mentioned, they want to shut him down and they want to specifically shut him up. They're sick of the message that he has been proclaiming. And so secondly, with unwavering conviction, don't be quiet, be clear. Don't be quiet, be clear. Paul is not easily intimidated. All of the Jews join in the charge, affirming oh, all these things are so, you know, everybody's against him, but Paul won't back down. Verse 10 and a half there, 10b says, knowing, excuse me, verse 10 says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now just stop there for a minute. I want to read the rest, but I was just really struck by this. Paul not being intimidated, instead of being shut down, instead of maybe choosing to keep quiet as, as maybe they're trying to impose upon him, he, I love this, he cheerfully makes his defense. Just notice this, church, notice. Paul is not defensive when he makes his defense for the gospel. We can learn so much from this. Because so often, when everybody's against us, when we've been wrongfully accused, when we've been slandered, when, when really our back's up against the wall, what is our normal fleshly tendency, isn't it? Isn't it, honestly, to get our back up against the wall, to get a little bit defensive, and how dare you, and to maybe lash out a little bit? But I love this because Paul reminds us, really, and here's what I, I really want, want to really take this to heart. Listen, Paul reminds us what a privilege it is to declare the truth of Jesus Christ. As much as it's an obligation and a responsibility to be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, I think this concept of cheerfully making offense needs to remind us that it is one of the greatest privileges in the world, listen, in the universe, not only to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, it's one of the greatest privileges that we have been given to actually declare, to hold out the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Now, I just wonder, do we actually believe that? I think this needs to help form the way in which we speak about, listen, our own testimony and the truths we declare. There should be in our hearts a sense of joy, a sense of cheerfulness when we start talking about what God has done in our lives. Isn't that true? When we start thinking about God's grace towards us, about his mercy towards us, about who we were, where we were, when God came and he rescued us, that should incite in our hearts a great deal of love and affection for Jesus Christ. And it should be something that cannot be contained and cannot be mistaken. It should be something that literally flows off of our face, from our lips, through the heart that God has given us, that beats for him. There should be a sense of joy when we start telling people, let me, let me, I'd love to cheerfully tell you about Jesus Christ. And so Paul does that. First, he needs to Set the record straight. Look at verse 11. It says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that they now bring it, what they now bring up against me. Now, I just want you to notice this. What Paul is doing here is very strategic in making a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has been slandered. You, know, people have, you have to think, here's, here's what's happening. 
When they're accusing Paul, they are manipulating the situation and they're trying to use emotions. Emotion is trying to override the fact of the matter, okay? And you have to think about that. This is a tactic that's used often in the world. If you can get emotional about something and you can emotionally charge the situation, you can emotionally fuel somebody, if they feel like somebody's been wronged or they've been wronged, then the facts oftentimes become far less important. And sometimes the, the mistake Christians make is when they're being attacked is they don't, they don't actually get to the facts. They don't dispute the wrong accusations. And Paul serves here, he knows, listen, he knows this, that if he doesn't dispute the claims that they're making, he really has no place to stand. Nobody's gonna listen to him. They're already emotionally fueled and they've presented this case. So Paul says, let, let me tell you, do you notice that a few times there? Like they, they can't prove this. That's not what happened. In other words, these guys are lying. You have to refute lies and you have to refute rumors oftentimes before you can actually reveal the truth. And, and that's what Paul does here. It's a really helpful tactic. When somebody you know, charges you, you, know, when, you when, when you simply say, well, you're a Christian, you must, you must, you must be a bigot. You must be narrow-minded. I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite important sometimes to often say, well, what is your foundation for that statement? C can you prove that in any way? It disables their argument, and then you're able, hopefully, for them to kind of step back and go, okay, maybe I just... Maybe I, I didn't base my argument in facts. And Paul says, look, they have nothing. They have no facts. There's no evidence for what they bring up against me. But then he gets to the real point of the matter. And this is why. See, he refutes their error. He says they're lying. There's no evidence. There's no facts to what they're saying. And verse 14, I love this. But this, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Just stop there for a second. This is Paul unfolding before Felix and before his accusers, the real reason why he's on trial. And make no mistake about it, Paul is making it very clear. It's not for anything I've done, it's only simply for what I believe. The reason he's on trial in the first place is because of his convictions. I just wanna encourage you, listen, when opposition comes to you because of your beliefs, you don't need to be fearful. You don't need to feel like you have to be quiet about what you believe. Attacks are gonna come. If you're living faithfully for Jesus, if you're speaking up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you just need to embrace this. Attacks and opposition, they're going to come and they don't need to agitate us. They don't need to set us off. They don't need to concern us. I, I love, I think Paul models for us an incredibly powerful principle in the Christian life that opposition creates the opportunity to provide clarity, okay? Opposition creates the opportunity to provide clarity. And I wanna, I wanna make the case for you this morning that there is nothing that breeds greater conviction in the life and the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ than having greater clarity on what you believe and what you have embraced. The less clear you are on what you believe about Jesus, the less conviction you will have 
Sadly, some people try to have convictions. Listen, there's a major problem, I think, with people, with, with kids, I've seen this. Kids who've grown up in the church, oftentimes, I think for many years, the church has done a really poor job at equipping um, the, the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ, and so their convictions aren't rightly formed. You know, they have superficial understanding of God's word and of doctrine and theology, and so what happens is they step out into the world, they go off to university, they get away from their parents, and all of a sudden, what we're finding out is kids are abandoning the faith in droves. Why? Why is that? I think the answer is very simple because the church has done a very poor job at helping children, helping teens become convictional Christians, those who know what they believe and know, listen, not just what they believe, why they actually believe it. They need to have a leg to stand on. We need to have a leg to stand on. So many Christians so easily knocked around because they don't have enough clarity on the things they claim to believe. But Paul sees this opposition that's come against him, and he simply says, listen, this is an opportunity for me to be clear, not only about why I'm on trial, but to be clear as to what exactly it is I believe. And here, some argue that this is a condensed version of what Paul actually said. I think there's good reason to believe that. We see that often happening throughout the book of Acts, and even in the Gospels, there's a summary kind of of what's been presented. It's possible that, that this here is a summary, and Paul really possibly could have elaborated on a lot of these things But regardless, we know that Paul is laying forth a doctrinal foundation of his supreme convictions. If if I could just simply sum up these convictions as we look at them again, listen to what he says, verse 14. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In other words, Paul says, I believe in the way. And we're gonna see here that Felix is actually very familiar with the way. He's heard about it. In fact, most people around the known world are beginning to hear about the way. And Paul is making it very clear in making this statement. I believe in the way. I believe, and by the way, in the way that encompasses everything you can think of, I believe that the way to know God is through Jesus Christ and him alone. I believe that there is only one way. And by believing the way, Paul is making clear, listen, secondly, that it's possible for me to truly believe and know the God of the scriptures. I I believe in the way, and I believe in God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, He makes it very clear that that this isn't something he's drawn out of thin air. He's not made up his own beliefs, his convictions. Listen, his convictions aren't formed based on opinion or based on what somebody else has passed on to him specifically. They're formed primarily by the scriptures in church. We just need to understand this. Every conviction we hold about Jesus, about God, needs to be formed and fashioned by the scriptures themselves. Beyond that, listen to what he says, verse 15, he says, having a hope in God. In other words, I believe in a future hope. I believe that what I'm saying to you is actually the only hope. I believe that without the things that I am holding to and believing that there is no hope. What does that hope ultimately look like in the end? Well, he he says, I believe that there will be, as some of these men themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul says, I believe that there is a future day coming where God will raise the living and the dead. In other words, I believe that all of us will stand before God one day, that this life is not all there is to it, and that what you hold to in this life makes all the difference in the world with your standing before this almighty God. Now, I just want you to think for a minute about our, our current situation. These are basic Christian convictions. We could say that these are, you know, kind of uh, you know, low-level Christian convictions. These are things that you must embrace, that you need to embrace to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul is wanting to be so clear on what it is he believes. Now, I just want you to think. Now, they're so upset that he believes in some of these things. I mean, specifically, that he is suggesting that the Jews have got it wrong, they've misunderstood the Scriptures, and that this way is actually the right way. But I was thinking about this and all of, the, all of these truths that he just expressed here. When you think about how out of fashion it is to believe in these things here and now, it's astounding, isn't it? I mean, to believe, first of all, that there is a way, a single way to God, that goes against the grain of our culture. To believe that there is a God, in, in many regards, in our secular, atheistic, uh, and increasingly more so society, to believe that there is a God seems like foolishness. To believe in scriptures as if God speaks, as if there is something that he has inspired, that is perfect, that is inerrant, that is given to us for in- instruction in all the matters of life and godliness. To suggest that there's even a a life, a future after this? That people are going to be raised from the dead? If you say those things today, most people are going to look at you and think that you're crazy. And because of that in our culture, I think there's a tendency for us to want to be quiet about our beliefs. We know that they're out of fashion. We know that they're out of step with our current culture. And so there is a tendency in our hearts to kind of just shut down, to keep quiet, because none of us like being mocked. None of us like being made fun of. None of us like feeling ostracized. I understand that. None of us like feeling like our reputation has been tarnished. And yet, the call to be a Christian is the call to stand for Jesus Christ and to be clear about what we believe. Paul goes on then to simply refute the false allegations in 17 through 21. And you might say this, that he believes in practicing what he preaches. He says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Here's the facts. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't stirring up trouble. But some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. I mean, that's a fair point, isn't it? Like, where's those who actually saw me do these things? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, here's what Paul says, here's the only thing I've done wrong, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In other words, he says, you know what I says? The only reason I'm on trial is for standing up for what I believe is true and right. That's it. And that violates no laws. Again, get used to this. This is what's happening in our culture. If you stand up for biblical convictions, I mean, sadly, you're going to be on the outs in culture. And I believe with all my heart, listen, I believe there's hope for our country. I believe there's hope for our communities. I'm not a pessimist in any way, but I'm, a, I'm also somewhat of a realist. I believe that things are turning against Christianity. I think it's, it's hard to argue that it's not. And I believe there's reason to believe that that's going to continue to happen more and more. And God is going to purge his church like this. God is going to really purify the church and find out who it is that's willing to stand for Jesus Christ, who it is that holds the true, right, biblical convictions. And it's going to be an incredible test for us. 
It's not only happening in the world, it's sometimes happening in quasi-Christian environments. In fact, this past week, um, a really, really fascinating story came out in the news and specifically in more Christian news, but uh, Tim Keller, if you've never heard of Tim Keller, Tim Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. He is, it's one of the largest churches in New York, evangelical conservative churches in New York. He's a faithful minister of the gospel. He's a defender of the faith. He's written countless, uh, incredibly helpful books for the evangelical church. He's a magnificent preacher, and he's just, if you ever watched Tim Keller, I mean, he is so articulate and careful with his argumentation, and, but he's got this demeanor about him. He's so soft spirited. I mean, it's, I, I, honestly, it'd be real hard to get this guy riled up. He's one of those guys, you know, not like me. He's just really this quiet, thoughtful kind of a preacher, defender of the faith. He's one of the most influential evangelicals of our day. Well, Earlier in the year, Princeton Theological Seminary, which began as a Christian institution, decided that they were going to honor uh, Tim Keller with their annual, what they call, it's called the Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology. Abraham Kuiper was a theologian and a politician at the turn of the 20th century, and he's famous for his writings on Reformed theology. It's fantastic uh, stuff that he's put out for the church as well. This award has been going on for years and years and years, and Tim Keller has been put forward for this great honor to receive this award, and coming alongside this award is the opportunity to give a lecture to Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, you've got to understand, Princeton Theological Seminary is no longer uh, a stalwart for, for conservative Christianity. They're, they're, in fact, one of the most liberal Christian institutions in North America. After announcing their selection of Tim Keller, there was an incredibly massive outcry against him receiving the award because of some of the doctoral convictions that he holds to. And so it's so ironic. Their doctoral convictions that were actually uh, a present when this seminary was founded, they were part of the very fabric of the foundation of Princeton Theological Seminary. And the convictions aren't things that, that Tim Keller has gone on a rant about. You know, he's, he's not... Um, out in public, you know, going off on tangents on these doctrinal convictions, but the convictions are specifically related to the ordination of women into uh, vocational ministry and, um, the, L and uh, the ordination of LGBTQ individuals. He's taken a stand and said, no, I don't believe the Bible teaches these things. And that is actually, by the way, historic Christianity. And the outcry was so massive. I mean, the letters that were pouring in for, to, to the, 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 the dean of the seminary, it was ridiculous. One woman wrote this really nasty letter, and instead of articulating any facts and, 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 and defending their doctrinal positions and why they believe that Tim Keller's wrong and they're right, here's what she says in the letter. She says, it's offensive to me that he believes what he believes. And as I've taught my four and five-year-olds to express, it hurts my feelings. Really? That's what it's come to? People's argument against, listen, this is, and I, I want you to hear this. It sounds hilarious. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But this is the argument of much of the world against Christianity. What you believe is offensive to me. It hurts my feelings. It doesn't make me feel very good about myself. I don't like what you have to say. Therefore, you should have no right to say it. 
We're living in a really sad day and age. We're living in a culture where it's a greater sin to hurt somebody's feelings than it is to reject biblical truth. Even in so-called, quote-unquote, Christian institutions. And as a result of this outcry, here's, here's what's awesome, you're gonna love this, Princeton decided to withdraw the award, the honor, to Tim Keller. Uh, sorry, um, we know this award is actually for uh, people who excel in Reformed theology, but your theology is too biblical and Reformed, so we're not gonna give you the award. But here's what's so astounding about this. In the midst of this opposition, in the midst of this outcry, in the midst of the attack, right, right listen, in the face of withdrawing the war, guess what Tim Keller is going to do anyways? He's going to go to Princeton, and he said, I'd love to still give the lecture. And they're going to let him. I think that's awesome. I think that speaks volumes about Tim Keller, about his character. You know, Keller's agreed to give this lecture. And again, like I said, he's, he's known. Listen, he's not going to go and spit fire and how dare you. You know, you're all going to hell. It's not Tim Keller in any... But I think Tim Keller sees this opposition as simply an opportunity to provide clarity about what he believes is true and right. And, I, and listen, he's not, I, I believe with all my heart, he's not, I'm interested to see what he's going to preach. He's not going to go after the issues they're accusing him on. You know what he's going to do? He's going to go and he's going to talk about what matters most to him, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to present it with such clarity, with such conviction. And my prayer, I'm praying, I'm, I've been praying for him all week. My prayer is that God uses this message in this liberal institution to radically save sinners there. They want Paul to be quiet. The world wants you to be quiet. God wants you to be clear. Ironically, that's the reason they, they don't want him there in the first place. He's crystal clear in his convictions. But church, let me encourage you, you need to get clear about what you believe. The day is coming where you will be challenged and you will be called to take a stand for Jesus. And if you're not clear about what you believe, the reality is, is you're likely not going to stand for Jesus. Many are quiet for Jesus because... As I said before, their convictions aren't deeply rooted. They don't feel adequate to explain their convictions. And if you're going to be clear about what you believe, you need to get clear about what you believe. It's not just about what you believe. It has to go beyond that to why it is you believe what you believe. Listen, Christians, we need to get better at digging deeper into God's word. We need to get better and we need, listen, we need to be discontent with a superficial understanding of the word of God and of sound doctrine. There needs to be a revived commitment in our hearts to go deep into God's word, to get anchored with the truth, to have our hearts on fire, to be lit on fire for the truth of God's word. And that is not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen overnight. It's only going to happen over extended periods of time of significant investment in studying and meditating and digesting the word of God. That's it. 
parents, let me just say it again. I mentioned it before, but this, this is one of your primary responsibilities of your If you do nothing else well in your entire family, do this well. Okay, do a lot of things well, but do this really well. Pour into your kids the word of God, right? Help them form deep convictions about what they believe. Test them on their convictions. Don't be content with superficial answers. You know, we sit around our table and every once in a while we ask a question and our kids instantly just say, Jesus? Don't be content with that. (laughs) It's cute, but it's not going to get them through their life standing for Jesus Christ. And you can't be content with just Jesus as your answer either. Gotta go deeper with your kids. You gotta help them, all right, parents? I know there are a lot of young families in here, and this is why I'm majoring on this. This is so critical. You have to, have to, have to prepare your kids for the world they're walking out into. This is your greatest responsibility in life. Study it, believe it. You say, how, how do I know if I can be clear? Answer this question, can you articulate the truths of the gospel? Can you articulate them well? Can you defend the truths of the gospel? Not just with, well, the Bible says so. Look, we as a church are committed to this. We wanna help in this, we wanna grow in this. We see this as our primary responsibility too in our teaching ministry in the life of the church. I really believe you don't, listen, you don't really know it until you can explain it, okay? That's a good, that's a kind of, you're trying to measure how well and how clear you are on the things you believe. You don't really know it until you can explain it. And so, listen, the practice needs to be when you study something, when, when you're learning something, if you can go to somebody else, and I would encourage you to do this, whether it's your spouse, your children, a friend, and if you can articulate it, you've likely grasped it. And the more you can do that, the better off you will be, the deeper your convictions will be, and you don't have to be quiet. You can work hard at being clear with your unwavering convictions. Thirdly, finally, don't be deterred, be determined. Don't be deterred, be determined. We see Felix kind of rendering his verdict at this point. Actually, he doesn't really render a verdict. He postpones his verdict, but he... He makes a decision here. Verse 22 says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So in other words, Felix says, I can't make a decision right now. I feel like I need more information, which is just a cop-out, because he's already got a clear letter from his friend Lysias that is explaining the situation. He has all the facts he needs. He just, he's, 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 listen, he's waffling because he doesn't want to upset the Jews. That's what's happening. And so he just puts Paul um, kind of in custody, on house arrest, so to speak. His friends are able to visit him. Paul's able to do some things. And many people believe actually, and by the way, this is gonna be two years that he's in prison. Verse 27 is gonna tell us that. But many people believe this is the time when Paul really began to gather a lot of information, a lot of research for some of the letters that he was going to write. It's possible maybe at this point that Paul saw this as an obstacle to the mission, right? This is, this is just deterring me from getting to Rome. I'm stuck here and, and I, I need to get out. I know what God's called me to and yet what we see with Paul is that he never views an obstacle as something that's outside the sovereignty of God. 
And Paul can never be deterred. That's what I love so much about Paul. He is never deterred. He refuses to be a passive participant in God's unfolding story. He believed that God had him there not to simply sit silently, not to shut down, not to shut up, but to stand up boldly with unwavering conviction, regardless of the context and regardless of the audience. In fact, look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is a Jewish And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money, here it is, here's why. You want to know why, why Felix kept him? At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He wanted Paul to bribe him. So greedy, so corrupt. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You can see where his allegiance is. His allegiance, listen, is is not to the Jews, it's not to Paul, it's to himself. Felix is ruled by self-preservation. He's he's a greedy, conniving, corrupt politician. He doesn't care about anybody. He really doesn't even care about the truth in this matter. He simply cares about what's best for him. And he knows that if the Jews are all upset about this, and if they riot, it could cost him his job and maybe even his life. He's got no convictions. Unlike Paul. Paul here... Just maybe to set the background, we know a little bit about Felix, but it might be helpful to get a sense of, of Drusilla, his wife. Many people believe this is how Felix was so familiar with the way. His wife is Jewish, and so she would have had probably a, a good understanding of not only Jewish theology, but this sect uh, called the way. But Drusilla is an interesting character in herself. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. Felix was her second husband. Jerusalem was the youngest daughter of Agrippa I and had originally married a guy named Azizus. He was the king of Emesa, a small kingdom in Syria. For some reason, she didn't find Azizus very exciting and she instead won Felix's affection with the help of a magician named Adamus. And she eventually became Felix's illicit lover and eventual wife. She was barely 20 years old at the time She was known for her unusual beauty. Her ambition and her lust equaled that of her new husband. And this sets the scene for Paul saying what he's about to say. You see, Paul's familiar. Everybody was familiar with the background, with their illicit relationship. Paul knew, and, and he wasn't afraid. I love this. Paul wasn't afraid to go right at the heart of the matter. He wasn't afraid to hit them where it hurt the most. And you can imagine the scene here. So, I mean, Paul's kept in custody. He's being treated fairly well. And, and Felix knows he's there. Jerusalem knows he's there. There's some kind of intrigue surrounding Paul. And so, you know, one night you, you have Felix and his wife, Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're together maybe in the evening and the weekends come. And they're sitting there like, hey, what do you want to do tonight? How about a date night? Sure, they had those back then too. And Felix, you know, being the kind of passive guy he is, says, I don't know, you decide tonight, honey. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? She's like, how about some entertainment? Let's go down and see that funny guy, Paul. He's a little bit of a fireball. So they go to see Paul, 
And really, really, the sense is there that they're going for a little bit of entertainment. They want to be entertained, and, and Paul perhaps will provide the entertainment they're looking for, and instead, what they get is the worst date night ever. Paul wasn't the kind of entertainment they were hoping for. In fact, when they come to Paul, Paul does what he does best. He stands with unwavering conviction on the truth. He speaks about what he knows best and what he loves best, and he goes right after them. And you'll notice here, again, this is, prob- this is a summary of what happened. You know, they, and they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul, this is the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. He can't help talk about the salvation that, be, that can be yours in Christ Jesus. You've you got to believe that he walked them through everything related to the gospel. That Jesus isn't just some teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just this great Jewish rabbi who lived. He is God himself. He's come. He lived a perfect life. I mean, you can talk to people who met him. The guy never did anything wrong. Not only that, he had supernatural powers over disease, over death, I mean, over everything. You've heard of him. You see, he's God, and and he came for a very specific purpose. He came to die for our sins, and and you have to believe that when Paul was preaching about the gospel and having faith in Jesus Christ, he, he was honing in on what mattered most in the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world, the payment that had to be made for us, and the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, the resurrection is just throughout, all over the place in the book of Acts, it is the key doctrine in the gospel. You have to believe, he said, if, if, you, know, you can't save yourself, Felix and Jerusalem. You can't do it. You're not good enough. You know you're not good enough. Look at your lives. He not only presented the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ for personal salvation, but he clearly discussed personal morality. He clearly wanted them to reflect upon how this related to their personal life. I mean, it says here that he talked about righteousness, in other words, there's no doubt that Paul would have talked about what he, what he speaks so often about in, in Romans, the holiness of God and man's responsibility. You know, God's holy and you need to be holy too, but there's a problem. I guess Paul says in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not one. And in speaking of this righteousness and, and, and the wrath that it produces in God for unrighteousness, there's no doubt he talked about Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. I mean, you've got to believe Paul is leaning hard into them here with the truth of the gospel, penetrating conviction to their heart. Paul also told these two uh, who had always followed their passions about the need for self-control, right? You have to follow the law of God. If you're going to be righteous, you have to obey perfectly the law of God, and that requires an incredible degree of self-control because you have to abandon your desires for sin and self, and you have to surrender yourself to God and his desires. Maybe he taught them as he did and he taught believers in Galatians 5 that this kind of self-control and self-discipline can only be accomplished by the indwelling spirit of God. And then finally, notice this, he emphasizes the judgment to come. You see where he starts here? He starts walking them through the truth of the gospel, and he lands at this place where he wants them to respond. That's what you need to see here. Paul is not going to be deterred by his circumstances or by the audience that is in front of him. He is determined to reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And so he says, look, there's a judgment that's coming. He's warning them that they would not escape divine accountability. And church, listen, we believe this, right? We believe that there is not a single soul in this world who is perfect and who can stand before the almighty, holy God of the universe and live. There's not one person who will stand uncondemned on their own. Everybody will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Undoubtedly, he pointed out that God would not only judge their outward actions, but also their hearts. I mean, church, we need to embrace this kind of determination in our, in our efforts, in, in our unwavering conviction. We need to be so determined to win souls to the Savior who alone can save them. And in doing so, listen, church, embrace what Paul demonstrates here. We cannot soft-pedal the truth. You can't leave out some of the most crucial aspects of the gospel. Preaching the gospel must include the lostness of man, God's holiness, and wrath against sin. It has to include God's universal demand, moral demands. It has to include the concept of divine judgment for those who refuse to embrace Jesus Christ. If we leave this out, we're not preaching the authentic gospel. So how did this affect them? Well, in Jerusalem's case, we don't know. We just have no clue. But the text is clear in terms of how Felix felt. You'll notice it says that Felix was alarmed. Literally, it can be translated, Felix was afraid or Felix was terrified. Paul saw fear in this ruler's eyes. Actually, this was the continental divide in Felix's life. He was at that very moment, maybe as some of you even in this room are being weighed on the scale of God's holiness and finding out that he is so inadequate, that he is so lacking in terms of the holiness that's required to be in the presence of God. And it was time for him to make a choice. And the choice is simple. There's only two choices when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is believing, repentance, or continuing rejection. That's it. That's it. The scale trembled and hesitated for a moment and then Felix said, that's enough for now. You may leave when I find a a more opportune or more convenient time. In other words, I'll send for you, Paul. Listen, this is so important to see. In a very real sense, he died in this moment. And this is a tragedy of infinite proportions. His moment was right there and listen, Belief in Jesus is not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of eternal consequence. Sure, he'd come back and visit Paul from time to time, but as we see here, it was only so he could see if Paul was willing to bribe. In other words, his rejection in that moment of terror had hardened his heart. There are two tragedies that are possible for every human soul. The first tragedy is of never trembling of never coming face to face with your sin before a holy God. That's another tragedy because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The second is the tragedy of disregarding the spirit-produced trembling. The one whom God has brought to fear for his soul, listen, in that moment must not turn away Whatever conviction Felix may have felt at Paul's preaching, it didn't make a dent in his greed. 
His heart now hardened, the moment of conviction passed, and what a staggering reality that is. However many times Felix spoke to Paul after this, that that fear-filled night, we don't know, but we know this, his heart was not changed, and here's the reality, he procrastinated in the moment, and it is a dangerous church, listen to this, Christian or unbeliever, listen, this morning you need to hear this, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing to not respond in the moment of conviction. It's dangerous. Don't be deterred in dealing with your sin be determined. Don't hesitate and don't procrastinate. Run to Jesus and experience grace and mercy in your time of need. You know, that's one of the benefits of us doing communion together. We get the opportunity to experience conviction, to have moments of responding to that conviction, of running to Jesus Christ in repentance and responding to his grace by worshiping and praising him. Uh, as you're kind of closing up there and preparing your heart for communion, I'll ask the ushers to, to come forward. But as they're doing that, I, I want to just share this with you. Listen, you can close up your Bibles, but I want you to, I just, I'd love for you just to keep, keep your attention just for a minute as the ushers are doing their thing. Just Listen, I believe Felix is right next to Judas when it comes to a missed opportunity. I don't know if there's another person, especially in the New Testament, that had the benefits that Judas had. Thank you. Being with Jesus so often, hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus. I mean, who had the experience of being near Paul and hearing these truths the way he did? He was so close. And it's so tragic to look at those who are so close and yet close their hearts to, to the Lord by not responding to his conviction. His heart was set on the immediate benefits of this world instead of the eternal benefits of another. In this moment, listen, this happens to us so often. He loved his sin more than he longed for the forgiveness of sin. Don't make the same mistake. If you're an unbeliever here today, I, I want to speak to you. This is a moment here for you to just simply hear what the Word of God says to you. Don't be like Felix. If the Spirit of God is confronting you and convicting you, there is a moment right now to respond. This is the grace of God that he would show you his sin, that he would reveal to you the reality of the accountability that you have before this almighty God. If God is speaking, you must not put off obedience to him. It is always the right time. It is always the right thing. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6 two say it perfectly. Listen, he says this, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. And let me apply this to Christians too in our time of communion this morning. We urge you, he says, not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus now. Bow the knee to him. Church, now is the day for us to take the stand for Jesus. Don't be deterred, be determined. Don't be quiet, be clear. Don't be fearful, be faithful. God calls us to stand for him with unwavering conviction.